on three, give me cruise show on two, three, and four. Six, three. Mach three, give me start, line two. Five, eleven. Mach three, give me start, line one, and cruise show on seven and nine. Line one, cruise show seven and nine. Do something. I hate that. Super Ops Line 2 is code 3 for engine vibe. Okay, so today we're joined uh, once again by Chief Master Retired Curtis Ott. And I went back through his episodes to look at how many he's been on. He's been on, this will be his eighth episode. He was on episode 27, 29, 34, 36, 41, 48, and 51. So if you enjoy what Curtis has to say and you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to go back to those episodes so you can get a better idea of uh, his theories on micromanagement, leadership, diversity, blue collar, uh, maintenance, leadership, everything else. Uh, so I encourage you to go back and, and look through those. Uh, but Curtis, thank you very much for joining again today. My pleasure. Today we're going to talk about the Air Force core values, and I feel like this isn't going to be... I mean, I've probably had conversations about core values while I served dozens, if not hundreds of times in my career. And this is going to be a different conversation. Uh, and I think the benefit of no longer being in the Air Force and being able to look at things more critically without that culture kind of influencing your thought process, I think gives a really good perspective that uh, I think both Curtis and I are going to have a chance to explore. And that's the privilege of no longer being in the Air Force. So I guess I'm going to start with what was your interactions with the theory of core values? Well, also, I think core values popped up later. I, boy, should have researched before I started the podcast. Was it like early 90s or mid 90s or something? It happened in the it happened in the mid 90s. I'm not exactly sure. 96, 97, 98, somewhere in in that time frame. So what like what rank were you about that time? Uh, oh, I was what? Staff or sergeant? Yeah, yeah. Sergeant. So what did yeah. you okay, so what did you think of? Because a lot of times the Air Force has a new buzzword, a new thing. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> All right. That was exactly what I thought. I thought, oh my goodness. Okay, so we had just come out of this thing called the Quality Air Force. And uh, there's been some statements made about Quality Air Force, and you know, a quality air force was ruined by a program called Quality Air Force, and then they came out with core values, and we still had the the mental stigma of the quality air force and oh my god yet here we go again and it seems that there's a lot of things that even today they come out with a new program initiative thing and and initially they have a good they're meant as a good thing mm -hmm. but over time systemically the good thing gets flush down the toilet, if you will, because yeah. somebody new comes in and says, oh, man, this is this is a waste of time. This is a waste of effort. This is a waste of energy. We can do something better, you know, and then you've lost all of that momentum. And so that's kind of where I thought core values was headed. And then I went to my first uh, PME where mm -hmm. they actually taught the core values, which was a senior NCO Academy, because that was the next uh, next thing in line for me at that time. And we did some deep diving into 
uh, core values and what it meant for it to be, you know, integrity for our service before self and excellence and all we do. So, but uh, as far as that goes, it was, um, it was, yeah, my first impression was, oh, here we go again. Mm-hmm. So that's good also that you, I guess we should have listed the core values for the Air Force are integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all you do. So how did you see that manifest? Certainly from the mid-90s when it was first implemented in the Air Force, you kind of got a good sort of um, primer on it in Senior NCO Academy. How did you see that particular, like the core values grow into Air Force culture, you know, thereafter? Well, they grow differently for everybody. Some people strive to embody the core values and other people, they read it and, yeah, I know what the core values are. But do you really know what the core values are? You know, do, do you truly, honestly understand what integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all you do, do you really know what that means? What do those three things mean? Yeah. Truly. So, yeah. So I joined in 98. So the core values were at least, you know, firm, right? Yep. It was big in uh, basic training. Core values was everywhere, anywhere, and was drilled into for everything. When I came out into the operational Air Force, uh, it ended up being a big focus on everything related to my job and maintenance. Signing off a write up, that's an integrity check. Like you did the job, you followed the TO as a seven level, you inspected it, uh, you are competent on it. For IPIs, you were there for the IPI step as an IPI individual. Uh, service for itself, I don't think that was necessarily, like when I think of integrity very often when, when I or would either give paperwork or I think at least a few times when I received paperwork, integ- like a core value was very often cited in that paperwork you know, you failed to do this, you said you did it, that's a violation of our first core value, integrity first. You know, this reflects poorly on your character as an airman and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the service before self, I don't think that ever necessarily was written or sort of communicated, but certainly in maintenance, it's just known, right? You don't get to pick your shifts, you don't get to pick, you know, anything, you're going to work weekends. And if we don't have enough people, you're going to work a lot of weekends. And oh, by the way, you're going to be voluntold to do the air show, you're going to do all these things. So service before self was very much a top down. You're going to do something because we need it done and you're the people that do it. Uh, It was, you know, very down looking, uh, commanding. You're going to do it. And it was everywhere. And uh, that's something I said in my retirement speech. Like one of the best things you can do is in maintenance kind of embrace the suck that if you stop fighting back against how difficult it is and how much it takes from you and you just like resign to your fate of there's work to be done and it's never going to end and i'm going to work that's what i'm going to do like when you resign to that it makes it much easier actually to function in maintenance because you're no longer like looking at the med group or anybody else as an easier better time and going why can't i wish type of deal you just go this is my world and this is how it's going to be and then excellence in all you do, I think that very often got wound up in aircraft maintenance as well, because that's the quality of your of your work. So the integrity you signed it off, but also excellence in all you do, like you need to do good maintenance to keep the pilot safe. Um, that might have slipped into a few pieces of paperwork here and there, but that was also like a well understood um, requirement. Uh, so that's kind of how I experienced the core values as a maintainer. Uh, does that sound pretty close for you, Curtis? 
Uh, you know, uh, I, to a certain degree, uh, the service before self, um, and, and I have a hard time separating, uh, my thoughts to other people's thoughts in this one, but, uh, uh, and I don't want to sound like I'm gung ho or no, you're good. ate up or whatever it is, but to me, um, the our my PME instructor, uh, used the charge of the light brigade, uh, the, you know, Valley of death and the mm-hmm. road to 600, uh, as a, you know, as an embodiment of what service before self, uh, means in, and you should embody that aspect of service before self, you know, uh, if you're going to work the long hours, you know, and you, you know, of course we did. And by the time the core values came out, I was a mid-level senior NCO kind of uh, leader at that point. Mm -hmm. So my perspective on the service before self was more of, you know, uh, sacrificing means, you know, service comes before your personal wants family first question mark you know little dot 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 question mark um and if you were going to work long hours in the service before self you didn't work long hours for yourself yeah your long hours were dedicated to though that which supported and did things for your for your airmen that was kind of where i was in you know core values as you know as i grew and uh, experience rank and understanding um, my perspective on that really didn't change much um, were there consequences behind service before self absolutely there were consequences behind it however we can't win any war or engagement unless we have people who are dedicated and put service before self that means that you, as you're doing something, you can't be doing it for yourself. You have to be doing it for the greater or the good of the whole. Well, I think that's a good point, too. And, and I think maybe my um, synopsis of service before self was shallow. So I appreciate, first of all, you being like, eh, it's not quite right. The military is engaged in the art of war, which involves death, right? Yep. It doesn't work if no one is willing to die for whatever it is you're fighting for. Like that's the, that's the thing. It's the hamburger hill. We need to take this hill and I need to send all these people up. If there isn't a a value of service before self that taking this hill or doing this thing is, is for the betterment of the entire society, country, and maybe, maybe the world. And it is a noble goal for me to give of myself to reach that end. Like that is how service before self absolutely works. Right. So, yep. so you're right. And, and the, the kind of the, the balance of that is much like I said in the, in the first suicide episode, it has to be the military needs to ask of you what is necessary to reach like a noble goal. And, you know, that service before self, like if, if they're going to ask you to lay down your life, it needs to be for, for the right reason. Absolutely. Yep. Morally, politically, but also like my, one of my chief complaints, you know, and I'm not going to move into this area for too long. One of my chief complaints is a lot of maintainers are killing themselves because we simply mismanaged the fleet and we mismanaged personnel. 
And that's not, to me, that is not something that invokes service before self. Like that, that is not a noble goal for you to give your life for. And I consider people in crisis that are in undermanned and under-resourced career fields to be giving their life for the Air Force, even if it's suicide. Uh, that doesn't, to me, that doesn't invoke the same sort of patriotism as, you know, we're going to give our lives for this goal. Good point. And one of the things that I see is people can't make the separation between uh, a manager and a leader. And, you know, to try not to be real succinct, if you will, or short, managers administer, maintains, and controls, whereas a leader motivates, develops, and inspires. So, when, when we're talking about people, you can't manage people. And it always irritates me when people say, well, they're a manager. What do you manage? Well, manage people. No, you don't manage people. If you manage people, you're going to get a really bad result. You have to lead them. And that kind of folds back into, you know, excellence and all we do, you know? Yeah. Right. So that's how I've always seen the core values and maintenance as a technician, essentially, um, where integrity was very often when you didn't do your job right, it was called into question. Service before self required a lot of self-sacrifice in order for mission accomplishment. And excellence was the standard because anything less could be catastrophic for people. Um, but also, like, this isn't like core guidelines. This isn't core uh, recommendations. This is core values. Yes. And like, I guess the, the, so the first thing I'm thinking of, my values were instilled in me as a child growing up into the world. Uh, like if I was taught that stealing was okay, if I was taught violence, if I was taught deception, you name it. Mm -hmm. I don't think joining the Air Force and being told what the core values are would necessarily adjust my values unless there's some sort of real life-changing epiphany that happens, Right. Very, very true, because uh, people's, you know, values in life are, are different across the board. Yeah. And what I what I find is uh, the Air Force struggles in in teaching what what is proper as far as core values, as far as what the core values are. Now, that's that was, you know, years ago. I don't know what they're teaching them today or how they're teaching them today. Uh, I want to make sure that I get that straight. But as I was growing up, we had to figure all of that little bit out ourselves through just being able to do the right thing, yeah. you know, and knowing what was right and what was wrong. And sometimes there's a very fine line between understanding what's right and what's what's wrong yeah. and which, which side are you going to fall on? And now, does that mean that, you know, your integrity is garbage because your personal values are different than somebody else's personal values? Mm. But at the end of the day, when you stop and think about what, what is right and what is wrong, it is actually spelled out, you know, if you're paying attention. If you're coming in saying, well, these are my values, you're going to have a problem mm -hmm. because the Air Force's core values are essentially a set for all people, not just, you know, like, you know, like you said, yeah. they're not for, not just for me to manipulate to how I want and yeah. to read and just say, I know what the core values are, but do you really, do you truly know what they are? You know, I think through the culture, the idea is if we all adopt these values, 
a lot of people fall into alignment with it because that's that's how you mm -hmm. develop your values growing up. You yep. look at your family unit and their values become your values, and then you join the Air Force. Um, and if everyone has is sharing the same sort of values, eventually it's going to become normalized and you're going to adopt it. But I think the really important part is values are are really deep and they're really powerful. They're like the the engine of your being of and then ultimately of like society moving forward. It can't be superficial. It can't be situational. It can't be uh, specific to certain conditions, situations. It can't, right? Like if it's a value, if it's a core value, it should be anywhere and everywhere all the time. So I guess my, my initial thought is I feel like that's not the case for most of the time. Like core values are used as a tool when a leader or when someone wants something in particular, you to behave a certain way in a certain situation. But there's, I've, I've written about it, I've spoken about it. There's been many instances where my integrity was driving, my service for self was driving me towards being at like diametrically opposed to my entire command structure. And for me, like the biggest thing was when I knew there was a, a person on a jury that was not impartial, like my silence would be duplicitous. I would be, mm -hmm. Uh, a co-conspirator in, you know, undermining the military justice system. And I, I, I could not, I just could not, I, you know, there's, I mean, there's certainly been times where I've done dishonest things in my military career. There's not, you're not gonna meet somebody that hasn't, right. but I also knew they were dishonest and I was ashamed of it. And I'm probably still ashamed of it. Um, but as a value, it creates an engine for action that is almost, it's, it's hyper difficult to um, ignore without yep. like significant, like emotional and mental sort of hardship, cognitive balancing and all these sorts of things to mitigate the ill effects of going against your values. Like that's what value incongruence is. It's, it's in cognitive dissonance. I did something that objectively violates my internal values. I need to find a way to justify what I did to realign myself with my internal values. Um, like that's how powerful values are. It can cause like real distress if you violate them. And I don't see that everywhere in the Air Force. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Uh, and, and, and once again, you know, people spew the word core values. And, uh, and I don't think that they fully understand what those two words themselves mean. Mm. And we'll just take the first word, core. Uh, which is the central and most important of of things. Yeah. That's essentially what it means is it's the most important and central of things. So when you, when you're talking about values it's the most important values that you can apply to what you do every single day. You know, there's there's there and I I think there's a lot of people being pushed to violate their core value because they're not being helped. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? There's rules and there's programs and there's, uh, let me just take, for example, configuration management. Anytime you change a part that's on a configuration management, what does it drive? It drives a suspense. Yeah. Suspense has to be cleared. Okay. How many times have you pulled up a 380? 
and oh my goodness, there's a red X for a configuration management. Okay. And in some airplanes, that's, you know, that's not so bad because they don't have many. In other airframes, there are, you know, hundreds and thousands of configuration items. So we're talking about, you know, people who are being pressed really, really hard to make sure that they're, you know, not flying an aircraft that still has a, uh, an item out of configuration, right. uh, not going in there and quickly, you know, clearing the suspense just so they can get, you know, the, the Red X cleared and that goobers up, you know, 52 different things down the line, yep. you know, only for one thing. And that's to quickly fly an airplane. Yep. Now, have I, have I seen it more times than I can count? Right. Did it make me happy? <laughs> Angry is how it would make me when I would find out that um, that we were either one, we were waiting on something, and sometimes it would be a long period of time. We'd wait for the suspense to clear. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, it was, you know, we couldn't get to it right away. But still, the bottom line is, is don't fly that airplane with a, you know, an open red X, mm-hmm. even though that the 781 series forms were clear. What isn't is the documentation that is going to keep a whole lot of other things from dominoing later yeah. on. That's going to cause somebody to have to potentially violate their integrity and their excellence. You know, it reminds me when I was a EOR super briefly, when I moved from lead production superintendent to EOR super, and I'm sitting on the truck with three other dudes, and they're like checking the fluid levels and stuff. And I would have to go behind every once in a while. And then I remember one time, like the hydraulics was like below minimum. It was like minimum was like 50 and it was at like 48. And I said, hey, the hydraulics were low. He's like, yeah, but we don't, we don't do anything unless it's five below minimum. I was like, but the minimum's the minimum, right? They're like, yeah, but you know, we, we don't have a hydraulic cart down here. And we're not going to send it all the way back or have them bring it down for that. And I said, so what if the jet crashes? What if the jet crashes for a flight control failure or something? I said, you're going to be faced with a choice, right? Because you're not the only one that knows the hydraulics were low because the guy that launched it out also probably saw it, right? So you're going to be faced with a choice between either lying about what it was at or admitting that you broke the law and a jet crashed and it had a hydraulic problem. Those are the two choices that you're going to face. And it could be the jet crash because the flight control computer had a malfunction. That was it. But the Axe Investigation Board is going to comb through anything and everything. They're going to interview all the people. And then, like, there's some options. You can go and, you know, try to talk to the crew chief and be like, hey, let's get our story straight. And now your lies are just compounding and it's getting worse and worse and worse. I said, or we can send it back. And it can be serviced. And eventually... We'll create a standard here where people will know they can't send jets down to UR that's five low. And they're going to make sure that it's serviced on the spot. Like it's the burden isn't on us to inconvenience them. They send, unless a jet leaked five to 15, you know, quantity percent between here. And I didn't see enough leaking for that. And it like, I think it really kind of, I think kind of bothered him because he was left with the choice. And I think that's ended up being between our, our mantra. We get out of the truck before like four jets show up. And I would say our job is not to lie or go to jail. Let's go. And that's, I think that's a good mantra, but I think it's also really fucking sad 
that that's yes. a mantra. <laughs> yes, right? that is that is you know that is that is so sad that you you would you would have to say that or that you would have to consider saying something like that. You know, that's where that's where you need to be growing that you know integrity and excellence. And you know, let's get it. Let's make sure we're clear here. Integrity and excellence go hand in they hand do. in hand. Holy cow, go hand in hand. The only real true outlier in the three is the service before self. Yeah. You can kind of work them into the other two, but integrity and excellence, those two things are absolutely linked. You cannot delink those two things. You can't have excellence without integrity. You can't have integrity without excellence. Yeah. Certainly in maintenance, like in, in, right. in, in maintenance, it's even heightened, I would say. And, and, and I'm sure that there's people who would argue that, yeah, you can have integrity and not be excellent. Well, you know, if you're telling the truth and um, there's a problem, how is that not excellence? Okay, so, right. And that's a great way because that's not how excellence is framed, is it? No. Excellence is framed in, in maintenance as sortie production. Yeah. Well, and mm, okay. Th that would be, I would say that would be the, the, the top, um, like the lagging indicator, if you will, of, of a core value is sortie production. The, th what was the, what was the percentage of, of aircraft available? What was your mission capability rate? When we're talking about leading those to an excellence, how did we get there? How did we get to those those digits? Were we uh, were we uh, did we have integrity and did we show excellence in our good numbers, or did we just driving towards a number? Well, yeah, that's that's the that's I guess that's the point, right? But very often, you're right. Like if you have integrity and you have excellence you're going to have like quality maintenance. That's what you're, that's the point you're making. And it's the fucking absolute right point. But I think very frequently when you look at like repeat recur rate, that's trending positively. And, but ultimately the, the, because what the pilots, what ops cares about, I would argue is sorties mm -hmm. because I think they assume wrongfully, if any ops happen to be listening, that all the maintenance is quality all the time type of deal or I think a lot of them assume that, or that's just the, the mindset. And so therefore, if, if quality is over there, then excellence is measured by how many sorties can be produced for our, our needs or whatever. But you're right, like excellence is actually doing quality maintenance. And, and there are frequently, there are times you're asked or expected to not do quality maintenance because it's expensive. It's very expensive to do quality maintenance in manpower, time, parts, like, experience your manpower as well like you have to grow people all these things um yes and no is it more expensive to do the job right the first time or to do it again okay if you don't get it right the first time you got to do it again okay and what's more expensive well double doing anything is going to be more expensive i had a op squadron commander uh, we got along really really well we were very very honest up front with each other. And um, he sat me down after an exercise one time and we were having a really good conversation. He says, he said, 
yes, everybody looks at sorties. And how many sorties did we make? He said, but here's the bottom line, chief. We can have all the sorties in the world, but if none of them are effective, then my pilots get nothing. We have to have effective sorties. And when something on the aircraft isn't working, that's not an effective sortie. Yeah, we flew a sortie. Big deal. That's, you know, towards a flying hour program. He says, but what that's not doing is that's not building a combat capable pilot. And so I told him, I said, look, I said, our conversations that we have, um, and we need to have these frequently, is in a week or maybe daily or somehow I need to know and my production staff needs to know what was effective and what wasn't effective. So they can look at that and say, okay, so the AIM-9 tone didn't lock. Well, that was a problem because that made it an ineffective sortie because we we're uh, air-to-air dogfighting. Yeah, I got a sortie. We got up, you know, landed, you know, uh, code three, code two for, you know, uh, tone. But the bottom line is, is it wasn't effect. It wasn't an effective sortie. The debrief in the end proved that fact. So what, what I did is he would send me, I can't even remember now if it was daily or weekly, but I, I tried to get it as quickly as I could. So I could debrief with my production staff so they could affect the change on that aircraft. So we didn't have to, you know, uh, have ineffective sorties and, you know, we go back to the do it right the first time. That way you don't have to redo it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in Korea, my, mon- my mantra was uh, no more one-year maintenance. Yeah. If you're going to do it, do it right. And that means if you have to rewire, you know, run a, a brand new wire through the, through the wing, we have to change all of the, the wiring in the wing. Guess what? We're changing all the wiring in the wing. Period. End of story. We're not going to have any more discussion about it. And it's going to be done. But is that a uh, normal philosophy, Curtis, in the Air Force and aircraft maintenance? Not if I had to tell them that that was, that was how it was going to be. Good, and, a, good point. And B, like when you were an inspector for IG, did you see that type of? All the time. All the time. I saw, we saw, we saw um, uh, one-year maintenance, if yeah. you want to call it that, all Everywhere. the time. Yeah. All the time. And uh, case in point, they were launching out an A-10 one time. I won't say where, but they were launching out an A-10. And we had to stop the airplane because it was hot, leaking hydraulic fluid all over the place. And the crew chief launching them out saw it. Well, he didn't stop the airplane. He says, well, if it's bad enough, they'll catch it at DOR. Oh, that's a scary story considering the one I just told, huh? Yeah. <laughs> the bottom line is, is, you know, that that philosophy. And, and I think you do have a point when it comes to, you know, uh, sorties and we got to get all the airplanes up. Yeah, get all the airplanes up. But those sorties that they're flying have to be effective or the pilot or the air crew or the whomever isn't going to get what they need out of that sortie. And now guess what they have to do? They have to redo it, which is going to cost money. And we all know how much flying hours cost, you know, it's, it, they're astoundingly expensive. Well, so if we get it right the first time, we're not spending so much money. But we're in a worse spot than that. Like if you go all the, all the way back to episode three, which uh, caveat, the audio is not the best quality because it was pri- you know pre-podcast. 
like we had Bear on talking about looking at how much of pilot training is deferred to the calf. Like, hey, we're waving, you know, night IFR, we're waving this, waving mm -hmm. this, waving this. He's going to show up and further burden, um, you know, wherever he goes to to get ready pre deployment. But I think also, like, I mean, we had that mishap, I think, where the pilot was trying to do three proficiencies at one time. One of them was night refueling with MVGs and then like a night landing or something, ended up crashing and, and dying. Um, mm -hmm. And his ejection seat also had an issue on top of it, too. So, like, what you're saying is true, but that's, but the sorties are the focus. Like yes. that's the real, like, and it's not that we're going to have to make up these sorties eventually. The answer is we don't, we send less qualified pilots down range. And I think it's, I think it's a, a symptom of the fact that we maintain air superiority for, you know, 70 years or whatever the number is. And so we go until i think until we get our until we can't maintain air superiority i think we're going to continue pushing sortie production because sortie production makes pilots and then like uh, looking for a training piece and proficiency piece right because we're talking training pilots take sorties and once pilots get to their you know final duty location they have to fly sorties to maintain proficiencies and things and i think you know certainly during uh sequestration a lot of those proficiencies were waived Yep. There's talking about, like Bear talked about, he can't, they used to mock the Russian Air Force for how few hours they get per year to maintain proficiency back in the 90s and 2000s. And now that's what we are getting for our pilots down at the CAF. So, you know, the ineffectiveness of the sortie is certainly a byproduct of focusing excellence towards sortie production instead of quality mm -hmm. maintenance, right? Yep. But between the pilot shortage, pilot retention, a lack of actually fighting contested skies, which we don't do at all. And certainly we have technologies that kind of further sort of shore up um, these, this lack of experience and uh, effective sorties as well. Like when you have a jet that's like super, super capable, you can have a less experienced pilot because you're going to assume the technology is going to kind of offset that lack of experience. I think that's the model we're doing. And I think it's fucking terrible because. This model will work for, you know, small countries, but, you know, much of what General Mattis, when he was pushing for that 80%, you know, MC rate mandate for all those fighters was, he was looking at near peer or peer competition of the skies and space and land and all these things. And I think he knew that we weren't there. The problem is you just can't wave, wave a magic wand and say, we need 80% MC rate. Like, the the people in the air force are exceptionally proficient at manipulating stats to get the stats you want so you can't do that you have to look at why haven't we been able to maintain an 80 percent mc rate for the last decade and let's start fixing those problems before we get to demanding an 80 percent but uh so that was a, a, a bit much but what do you think curtis i i, I agree um the the what should have been was what's it going to take for us to get to 80 percent that should have been the question what should, what's it going to take for us to get at 80%? And then, you know, him sitting there and looking at everybody going, uh, don't, I don't want excuses as to why we aren't. I want you to tell me how do we get to it? You know, I'm not just going to say 80%. I don't think the Air Force knows how to get to it. I, well, oh, okay. Uh, I think they know how to I say we will get there. I think they don't actually know how to get to it. <sighs> <laughs> I, I think I think they do. 
I truly believe that they know how to get there. But the the problem comes when the amount of need that the Air Force has for all kinds of things. Yeah. If you take a look at a funnel, okay, and at the top of the funnel, it's very large. Those mm-hmm. are the Air Force needs. The very bottom is what the Air Force can afford. Yeah. Okay, so they have to shove all of these needs into this funnel, and what comes out is what the Air Force can afford. And so everyone's underfunded. Yeah. Can we get to 80%? Absolutely. What's it going to cost? A freaking lot of money. A lot of money. More money than than I think Congress would even consider sending to the Pentagon. Yep. Bar none. Yep. That's what it's going to take. And I think and you know you know um, everybody knows that you know cuz you can cure a lot of these issues with with money it would take a lot of money but also it will take an a nation to generate the uh ability to create the items necessary to support the aircraft and one of the things that you know, throughout my career, I've always came up, come up against what's called the disappearing contractor. Mm. You know, you build an airplane and all of the, the airplanes, when they build them, have individual contracts to build certain parts for the aircraft. Well, when the aircraft is done being built, the, the rush on all those parts dwindles away. Yeah. And you can kind of look at that piece uh, a way that the auto industry is being affected today. They were, you know, we, we went from a warehouse absolutely packed full of parts yep. in the, in the eighties. When I came in, I didn't know what a cannibalization act was. Mm. Seriously. Didn't know what yeah. that was. Why we ordered it and it showed up. Mm-hmm. Why the, the warehouse had, it was full, completely full to the brim. Whereas now they're going to the just-in-time maintenance, so you get that part so you don't have it sitting on a shelf because you can't afford that kind of logistical uh, line of communication. You just don't have it. You just can't afford that. And like the auto industry, uh, they during the pandemic, companies were going, well, we have to do something to stay busy, so they retooled. The moment mm-hmm. that they retooled, now the auto industry does not have those parts that they need to build those those automobiles and that's the same way it is when you're building an aircraft you have these contractors who build these parts and then when they're done building the aircraft the contractor that built the part has to stay in business so they have to retool so when they retool in order for them to get the parts to build more parts, that means that there has to be a new contract that's going to take a couple of years to get in place. And then they have to retool because chances are they busted up the tooling because they don't want to have that stuff laying around because it's taking up space in their warehouse. So they're going to get rid of it. So now they have to build new tooling to build the parts or the components or the whatever to you know make it happen. And what really happens is a new contractor comes into play under bids. Yep. Like when I was in the 21st, I think it was either a high stage valve or low stage valve. I can't remember which one. Uh, one of those two. 
it was made by a contractor and the electricians knew this valve is going to be bad in three to five flights every single time they'd get yep. it in it would be have a surcel tag on it they, and they had to put it in and they were con you know i work pqdr uh, towards the end of my career you start to see the same sorts of and and it's because you're going with the lowest bidder because again you're chasing that that dollar quality mm -hmm. suffers mm -hmm. uh and there's it takes a, a huge effort to to uh, you know identify because how, how many pqdrs actually happen compared to failed parts out of supply like what 10 20 percent is the number probably of how many people actually like return parts that are new for warranty sorts of claims and then go through the process we make the process so convoluted and difficult as well that it actually like stops people from doing it you know and then when you're talking about like these cascading logistical issues like i was I, you know i've been watching the the news and the the war in ukraine and like clearly the russian logistical infrastructure is the the biggest house of cards in a house of cards right like <laughs> and soaked in soaked in gas yeah and an inch and an inch away from a, an ignition like source. they got they got tires that are just failing because they haven't they haven't rotated them for decades or whatever and 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 you know there's probably rampant corruption where people are pocketing stuff and buying cheap parts i get it but like what we're seeing now how like glory ukraine for sure but what we're seeing now is a large military where they took for granted their logistical infrastructure for decades and then they go to fight the fight and they find that they've been lied to about the state of the entire uh, architecture and they can't fight and mm -hmm. i'm not trying to draw like direct comparisons but the the fleet of aircraft is old the the maintainers are are we've lost a lot of good experience they're undermanned they're, they're also like morale is down like I don't know how many books have been written about like morale is really fucking important to getting shit done and it's like a really hard thing to measure and it's intangible but like it's important so we're not we're not in the state of the russian logistics yet but we aren't as good as we think we are either no uh and uh I, we it's been a while since i think we have been and thought we have one of the aspects of core values though it's not mentioned in there and you know it should be as somewhere inside of the core values is the leadership aspect of it um you know there's there are traits and there are um uh principles of leadership you know traits integrity loyalty commitment and energy uh decisiveness and selflessness well, that's a that's a good segue because that's actually what this podcast is about, right? Like, what do the core values look like instead of just through the narrow view that I certainly experienced in my career through the technical side of my job? What do core values? Because core values are supposed to permeate everything you do. It's a core value. Absolutely. What is what does the core values look like through a lens of leadership? Right. Like exactly. What is what is in, what does integrity look like as a leader? Like. Uh, what 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 will be some situations where we see where you know in our in our past leaders have not exhibited integrity in their leadership you know some of the things I, that like spring to mind is like being honest and forthright with your subordinate on their inadequacies during a feedback um i mean we violated this tenant when everyone was a firewall five from 1998 to 2015 or whenever it was and now we're seeing the shock 
of people that have been lied to about their performance for 15 years now getting faced with these EPRs that are not, they're the best, right? Like when you, when you mark someone all the way to the right, and it's really strange because everyone knows EPRs are, are lies, but everyone also like gets marked all the way to the right back in the day when it was that way and they get firewall fives and they go, well, I'm a, fire, I'm a firewall five. Like it's still some, for some reason had value and it reinforced their behavior that what they're on the right track. And that was because systemically you couldn't give an honest fucking feedback. Like if you try to write a four for somebody that was mediocre, you would have to, as a supervisor, you'd have to fight. You'd have to go and explain, oh, okay, chief, well, this is what, well, what paperwork did you write? I shouldn't need to write paperwork for someone that's a four. Like paperwork, we're talking to one category. I should be able to mark someone between a three and a five, how I see fit with no paperwork required. Because either they're mediocre or they're great or they're somewhere in between. That's not a paperwork scenario. So like even in like systemically, we lied. Uh, and even through leadership, like awards in 1206s. Like, and I, 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 I'm not necessarily salty about not getting an award. Like there was a time where I, like 2013, I was absolutely kicking ass. Like, and I had a great chief, I had a great leadership team and I was, I was working hard, working a lot of hours, but involved in school and air show. And it wasn't because I was like a gunner. It was because it's like, I work for good people and I want to, I want to thrive and like show them what I'm capable of. And I wrote a quarterly award package that looked like uh, a yearly. It had so many things on it and it was all within the quarter. And uh, I lost out and I wasn't like super upset over it. I'm like, well, how the fuck did I lose out? And I went to my chief who was on the uh, group. So I, I, I was at the group level. I was like, hey, how the fuck did I lose chief? He's like, it wasn't your turn. It was someone else's turn. And you also aren't promotable to senior. So they're trying to get this guy set up and it was his turn to get the quarterly. Like that's, that's legit. I mean, he was being honest with, and he, I, yeah. I have full faith that in that room, he brought down fire and brimstone about why that's the wrong thing to do. And he was mm -hmm. nice enough to tell me like, you did great. So don't take this as you, you didn't get it. But like, that's really fucking dishonest. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, where's the core value in that process as well. And then if you get, also get into just the nuance of it, right. Like I've said multiple times that expediters know when somebody pencil whips something or they know when like, yes, there's an integrity issue with the pencil whipping. There's also a leadership integrity issue that you are fostering that environment and you're endorsing that behavior. And oftentimes you're rewarding it because as an expediter chasing the sortie God, this moved the needle a bit, a little bit closer to getting that sortie up. So like you are happy in that somebody pencil whipped it and they like, they know that it, the, the technician knows that if they pencil up someone in front of the expert, the expert takes the forms and greens up the jet, da, 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 da. They know that they've, they've done what their leader wants them to do. And it was patently dishonest, right? So there's some initial thoughts about how, how the core values in, in leadership integrity <laughs> interplay. What do you think, Curtis? <laughs> okay. So I can't add too much to that because that's, you know, uh, I, and here's what I hate saying is, is that 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 little piece that you just shared is not a isolated incident. No. OK, that is absolutely not an isolated incident. I was as I was retiring, I was told that I was jaded because uh, 
we had uh, the quarterly awards and I was raising six kinds of hell in that room with, you know, some E9s, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, there's a, people get, get a little case of the ass when you say that because, well, that's derogatory. It's meant to be. You should be ashamed that you're an E9 and not a chief. Like, don't, don't worry about your feelings. Get with it. it exactly. Exactly. Um, and um, though it was my last one, um, I kind of let things fly a little bit in that room. Because, you know, as you were saying, I, I didn't, I, I understood what they were trying to do. But then I, you know, I started asking some pretty in-depth questions about the individual that they were trying to push forward, mm. you know, and because um, my perspective and their perspective on this individual were different. Yeah. Okay? Uh, I had some information and I just wanted it clarified. And the moment that I started bringing that up, it was like I was affronting everybody in that room. Well, we don't want to answer the question. Why are we, why are we pushing this guy? If this is the kind of leader that you're, we're going to expect in the end, you know, just because he's, you think that he's good because maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's kissing your ass or something. Is that the right guy that we want to have wearing the stripes that we all share in this room? Is that what we want? If that's what we want, then here's what you're going to get in the end. You're going to get lackluster leadership. You're going to get people who don't know how to be a good follower, can't set the example, have a hard time communicating. Are they accepting the responsibilities? Are they developing teamwork? Are they doing the things of leadership, principles of leadership? Are they doing those things? Or is it just that person's time to get promoted? I held off on one individual that worked directly for me. Uh, said he's not ready for promotion. Let's look at somebody else. And everybody's kind of looking at me, going, "Well, he was like the number one guy. He's really great." I said, "No, he's not ready. <laughs> he's not ready." Isn't it strange that that reaction is so common when, like I've said it before, I think I've said it before. Like, there's a whole culture around. I think especially for chiefs, I'm going to get my guy promoted. Mm-hmm. And that's somehow a vicarious ego stroke for that chief. Yes. And I've seen some terrible masters and seniors get these glowing packages written by chiefs and they get promoted. And then they're like terrible fucking chiefs and terrible seniors. I'm like, why are you pushing? You like, you, you, you wrote this package saying he's great. And then we're drinking beers and you're like, that is a fucking moron. And I can't trust him with anything. And I can't even send him up to the to the wing because he'll say dumb shit to the wing commander. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do you have a fucking doppelganger writing packages? And then like, I don't understand how you can say these things and know that he is like well in over his head at his current rank. And now you've pushed him to get promoted. But there's a real culture of I'm going to get my guy promoted. And that's that integrity thing. Okay. Um, it, it, what's what's your how deep is your integrity to say, hey guys? Hey, you know, what about so-and-so? You know what? No, he's not ready. But he's your guy. I said, well, 
I don't yeah. have a guy this time. Yeah. I don't have a guy this time. Because ultimately so you're trying we, to uplift the best because that's going to overall you, help. What do you need from me to help your guy? Because yeah. what I see from standing across and looking over the fence is this guy is doing your job yeah. better than you are, you know? So why are you, why are we not pushing that guy? Well, because he, you know, got into trouble so-and-so back in whatever I said, okay, if he's, if he got into trouble, what was it? Was it a reoccurring thing or was it a one-time event? If it was a one-time event and he's got his act together and he's doing your job and he's doing it better than you do. He knows what he's doing. He can, he's motivating. He's inspiring. He's a good follower. He's doing all of these things. How do we get from here where he's not what you would can say promotable to where he is promotable? What do you need from me? I'm all about helping here because he's going to make a really good chief. You know, yeah. he's going to make a really good senior. Let's figure out what we need to do to get this leader into the position where he's going to influence in the Air Force. The, the leadership is the art and science of motivating, influencing, and directing airmen to understand and accomplish the Air Force mission. How do we get that person to do those things? Well, and that's a good question, too, because, like, I think you touched on it very briefly, but even in, like, that expediter scenario where, like, he watches the dude pencil whip, whatever it is, takes a form, greens up the jet, and moves on, he taught that airman a leadership lesson. Like, and leadership lessons, you can have some, like, you're talking about cascading effects. Like, if we've been dishonest with EPRs for the last 15, 20 years, that means we've probably promoted a lot of the wrong people for the last 15 or 20 years. And those people are now in those positions to recommend promotion for other people. You have those people that saw the expert like let things get pencil whipped because glory to the uh, uh, sortie God is all important. And now 10 years later, they're expediters and they're pro supers. Like, let's not kid ourselves. Like, leadership and, and this is going to apply to integrity I, I, i'm making this point now and i'm going to make this point at the end of our evaluation of the other two core values because it literally all fucking applies how you lead people you are creating the pattern you're creating the recipe for their leadership in 5 10 15 20 years and if we've been doing it wrong if we have been violating the core values as a course of business in leadership, which I believe we have, I mean, we've only touched on integrity right now. We're going to go into service before self and excellence as well. I think the broad output is you are going to have low quality leaders at really high fucking positions, because as we all know, the Air Force doesn't, they're not picky with promotion. It's we're going to promote 43% of whatever the fuck comes through the promotion pipeline this year. So if the entire population, the leadership qualities are diminishing, you're still going to promote 43%. When it comes time for the really high positions, like you're going to have a, a less and less, the candidates are going to be lower and lower quality each time. This also goes back to our diversity conversation, right? Like we are like, we don't have a good pool to promote from into these positions I think right now. And I think that's why we're seeing some leaders that are really 
like not good at all. Um, but you look like you had something to say. <laughs> well, you know, you, you uh, kind of said it when you said the promotion and this new promotion system. No, I don't, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, I know that it's based on the written word. One of the things that I hated more than anything uh, from a subordinate or a follower or my assistant or whatever was somebody kissing my ass. You want to yeah. piss me off quick? Yeah. <laughs> you you come in uh, looking for you know the the pat on the back or the you know the the whatever. Do do your job. I yeah. I got you covered. But if you don't do your job and if you're kissing my ass and you know, doing things that I didn't ask you to do, or because you thought it would make me happy, we're going to have a problem. Yep. And if, and there are people out there who love people coming in and just smooth and all over them. And they think that they're feeling so great, you know, that they're such a good leader and they're doing such a good job. Me, I had to have the, I had to have the person in the room that would disagree with me because I knew that the moment I had somebody disagreeing with me, we were going to find the right answer. There was yeah. going to be the right answer coming. But if you're someone who enjoys someone who agrees with you and you're surrounding yourself with yes, men or yes, women or whatever, um, you're going to write a promotion, uh, an EPR on based on that. And that's, what's going to get them ultimately promoted you know and that's a that's a good point there's like and i can't remember his name unfortunately but there's so there's like three programs kind of grassroots programs that are coming up in the air force there's airmen for life which we've talked about before mm -hmm. there's also um theory of constraints which is more of yes. a management but how do we manage this to mm -hmm. maximize efficiency and not waste yep. right Yep. But also being honest of what do we need to cast mm -hmm. aside because it's which the Air Force isn't good at. And the third yep. one is, is uh, man, I'm, I feel bad because I even connect with them on LinkedIn and watch the presentation. But there's one called psychological safety. Are you familiar with that one? Mm -hmm. And that's basically an organization that promotes discourse. Like people feel that, A, they can speak up and it won't hinder their promotability. And they can speak up and they'll be heard and it might be included in decision making. Like we had to create something because it, we recognize it wasn't fucking happening, which is terrible. And that's when I, I go back to our conversation earlier, where anytime that you have to create something to make something happen, it's not going to get the results you need. You yeah. have to have that leader who needs that in the room, not just being forced to have it in there because yeah. I got to have this in here because mm -hmm. this is this new initiative and I think it sucks and I don't want that you know, people to disagree with me, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to grumble and I'm going to listen to what they say and I'm going to do it anyway. Yep. Okay. There's the difference between force feeding somebody a program and you teaching and educating that leader in a formal or informal environment and not being some program that's being forced down your throat, but start them off young, yeah, younger. And explain to them in, you know, well, these things might be basically the things, the things are all running together now, but they're also, they may not be meant for the leaders now because the leaders now have been lied to about how great they are for 15, 20 years, that they're never going to accept these changes. But this, these programs might very well be for the lieutenants, A1Cs, like 
this is the Air Force you are going to build on these theories and how this how this works. And, and that and that may work. But, you know, you mentioned four programs and, you know, four to uh, what is it? Uh, Fortify the force. Fortify the force. I, I pronounce it. OK. Fit because there's two F's. Yeah. So so here's the deal. You got five programs running concurrently. How are you getting all of that stuff and keeping track of all of it? You know, what are they teaching in PME? Oh, that's actually you know? a good point, too, I wanted to bring up. You gave me a good segue real quick. So I was kicked out of PME. I, 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 mm-hmm. Did you? Yeah, you read the story. <laughs> so I was disciplinary release from NCO Academy. And that's only, that's only partially the point. But I think what's really important to note is at NCO Academy on the first day. So I went to Vossler in uh, Colorado Springs. And they didn't have any of their regulations online to read ahead of time. And on the first day in a class of 100, and, I think we had 125 people in my NCO uh, Academy class. We all had to sign something saying we read the entire rule book for Vossler NCO Academy and we agreed to all the terms contained therein, which I signed because, and they had a single book in their admin office and 125 people all signed and said, we've read this. And it literally was not, that was in my rebuttal to my disciplinary release. Like this should be available online because like you literally had your entire school knowing that it wasn't possible for this to even happen and getting everybody to sign an oath saying that, yeah, they reviewed this rule book. So like at, at military PME on the first day, they asked for 125 people to lie and they knew it was a lie. And the book involved like academic integrity. I can't make this shit up. Like that's like those, the, the leadership integrity piece that is severely fucking lacking. Yep. Yes. And I've seen that in, you know, my own units where, you know, they've explained it to me and I went, well, why don't we have more of these? Or, you know, why are we, <laughs> why are we not, why are we not doing what a leadership principle equipping the airmen? Yeah. You know, and, and to you and me, equipping the airmen means we, they have the tools that they need. But when you're equipping the airmen, you're talking about Equipping them with all of the information they need to be successful, whether it's a tool, whether it's a AFI, whether it's a policy or whatever, do they understand it? Have, did they read it? Yeah. Did you make it available to them? If you didn't make it available to them, then you necessarily can't hold them accountable because if you didn't make it available, and availability means it's not just one book sitting on a shelf. It yeah. means that you know, you have part of your in-processing is, is you sat down and you've read your sections book. Yeah. You know, 25 people don't come into your AMU all on the same day, except maybe in Korea. Yeah, fair. Yeah. And, in, and in Korea, you know, you give them some leeway, but, you know, there are certain things in Korea that you let them know up front. You know, curfew is like the number one thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, underage drinking is the number two thing. Yeah. Um, so, but. And all of that, you have to make sure that they have what they need. Now, before I go any further, what I want to make sure that I do is I don't, I, you know, I said that there were, you know, five programs. And it may have sounded like I was a little bit um, cutting towards them. I'm not knocking any one of those programs. Every one of those programs has a real and viable reason for its existence. My only concern is that there are so many of them right now 
being thrown at the airmen. And yes, are we equipping them? Sure we are. But are we equipping them in the right sense of equipping them? You know what I mean? Are we throwing a lot of stuff at them and then expecting them to absorb it? Yeah. You know, well, I also told like uh, the founder of um, Airmen for Life, I was like, this program's great. And a mm-hmm. lot of reason this program's great is because he personally invested in it. Like he took yes. a lot of risks with it. He went to ops and said, We're, you're going to lose half your people every other Friday and mm-hmm. we'll still make it happen, but that's how it's going to be. And it was not a ask for permission type of deal. It was, we're going to do this. I'm the commander of the AMXS. These are my people. If you don't like it, you can fucking get bent. I mean, he didn't say those words because he's much more tactful than I am. He's a really good guy. He is. And he basically, he put his, and that's like, that's the fucking, and this is a good segue too. Let's segue into service before self in leadership, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Because that's what he just did. Yes. He put his people ahead of his career. Mm-hmm. And, he, that, and, and that is not a thing that happens very often in the Air Force anymore at all. No. And, and it's also strange that putting your people first is a risk to your career. It shouldn't be. If you're putting your people first, that should actually make you more promotable in, in the Air Force system because it serves before self. It's a core value. It's what we, what we want leaders to strive towards. You know, we talk about servant leadership. We do all those things. But the reality is, especially in maintenance, uh, unless you can create a, a novel program like they did for airmen for life that that radically changes the paradigm most of the time when you stick your neck out it's going to cost sorties which goes back Mm -hmm. to everything else and how do maintenance leaders get promoted it's essentially mission accomplishment period that's it so we've created a system that disincentivizes putting your people first because it will manifestly affect your career, period, in, I would say, most organizations. Mm-hmm. But what's ironic is he did this program and it's probably going to vault his career. Like it's highlighted at the highest levels. Yep. It's, it's very good. And I, I hope there's people listening to this or I hope there's people seeing that program and go, oh, they, there, is a, there is a potential to get promoted by putting your people first, which is a, a thousand percent how it should be. But the, the question is, does it require the chief master on the Air Force to take notice of it before you gain career benefit from it? Also, he wasn't seeking career benefit when he did it. He just wanted to make it better for his people um, at that location. And he pulled a lot of good data showing that his people were not doing well beforehand. And he's like, I need to do something about this, which was, you know, like this guy, I don't, I mean, I've talked to him a few times, like he's what a lot of commanders should be, yes. but it requires risk. Yep. And a lot of commanders are, are completely risk averse yep. and leaders in general. First time I met him, uh, he was uh, an outstanding lieutenant. Mm. You know, he was he was he was that good. And I and I never gave uh, much credence to people who did their job. Well, he didn't just do his job. He did more than his job, even yeah. from a from the from a lieutenant. But, uh, you know, uh, you, you're right. People should elevate you. Yeah. You shouldn't use them as stepping stools to get up to the top. And here's what worries me about the current chief leadership thing. And I'm getting, I got some feedback and I get feedback a lot on what I asked some very specific and blunt questions. And one of them was, you know, are the chiefs 
competing for the next job? And the answer I got back was a resounding yes. So the moment that a chief changes the philosophy of I'm never getting promoted again, I, yeah. uh, this is it. This is as high as we go. And the reason that they created the position in the first place was because we, you know, in, in the Air Force, in the uh, Chief's Creed, one of my favorite things was, you know, a, you know, a person who can say no with emphasis without, you know, with all the world saying yes, you know, a chief can say no. Why? We're never going to get promoted again. However, if a chief is worried about the next job, the, the group job, the the functional yeah. wing function or the command chief up to command chief or whatever, if you're worried about that, then guess what you're not doing? You're not saying no in when all of the world is saying yes. Yep. You know, you're not being that chief who is providing that voice for the airman. You know, you're not being a servant leader. Yeah. If that's what you're doing. If you're worried about the next job and you're focused on yourself and you may say you're not, but you know, you're, you've been eyeballing that, you know, when I made chief, I, well, first of all, I was rather, you know, stunned when I was asked, you know, when I was a master sergeant. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah, reference episode back, 27. You talked about that. Yeah. 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 yeah go, go back and listen to that. I didn't know that until I was asked that question. But once I made chief, I had no visions of anything higher than an aircraft maintenance unit. Yeah. I didn't want to do anything higher than an aircraft maintenance unit. However, I did, but I didn't uh, go looking for the job. Yeah. I did the job because I was being one, I was being ordered to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the officers above me, appointed above me, ordered me to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as a good, as a good follower, I'm going to salute smartly and I'm going to do the job. If I had the opportunity to, to not do the job and I could talk them out of it, well, I was going to talk them out of it because I wanted to stay close to the airmen because that's how I felt that I could truly influence uh, them is by being close to them, not mm, from a yeah. lofty position. Now, yes. Do they need those positions? Sure they do. And those positions should be filled with people who do it reluctantly. Yeah. Okay. Because if you're doing it reluctantly, that means you were ordered to do it. But being a good chief, you're going to do the best that you can possibly do, period, without question. No, and I think that's a, that's a good point. And it, it reminds me, like, in my career, I didn't necessarily uh, aim for promotion, but I didn't want to hurt my promotion, right? Right. And mm -hmm. when I made master, and certainly when I moved to Holloman, I was like, I don't, I don't, I genuinely don't want to, I don't care about being, I, I really let it go. So even though I was mm -hmm. only a master, I had that, what you were talking about, that E7 mentality of there's no more promotions to get. And that's when I just started, you know, poking the bear at everything that I knew was wrong, that I, I'd known was wrong the whole time, that I, part I was a, a participant in those wrong things, in and knowing people weren't doing the best quality maintenance or deep paneling and three pointing a motor, then putting the panels back up so I could carry it FM over the weekend and then hurry up and get the motor out Monday morning and break it out. Like those, those things that you're like, Hmm, this is skirting a lot of things, right? Like I was involved in those things. And then once I kind of was like, I really don't care about being promoted anymore. It was like, I'm going to throw down. And I think it, people did not know 
how to deal with that, especially as a master, because much of much of the motivation in supervisors for maintenance is, you know, dangling promotion in front of a person. Oh, do this, you'll get promoted. Do this, you get promoted. When you're no longer like playing the promotion game, they literally don't know how to get to coerce you into doing the thing they want you to do because there's they have no more incentives left at that point. Um, And like I've argued before that in order to make chief, not every time, but most times you can't say no a whole lot. You got to yes, 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 yes. Um, not every chief and not every senior, certainly not me, but the easiest path to chief is to say yes a lot, I'll say. And I think by the time they, because you start saying yes at like tech, like that's when you start like focusing on, I want to make chief and you, you, yes, accept, yes, we'll do it. Yes, we can make it happen. Yes, 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 yes. And by the time you make chief, I think that, that courage has atrophied like you. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your cognitive pathways are so well-worn of deferring and agreeing that by the time you're at a position where you can like affect change and you don't have to be concerned with promotion anymore, you kind of forgot how to do it. And I think that also plays back to the dangling promotion. I think they, then they turn back to their prior motivator for doing all the things, which is promotion. When your chief promotion is going from AMU to squadron to group to wing to command chief, to numbered Air Force command chief, to da 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 da, mm-hmm. or Pentagon working functional, mm-hmm. you know, you name it, right? Those are the next things you chase because that's all you, that's, that was your engine for the last 20 odd years. Was from senior airmen on, your engine for a lot of things was here's what you need to do to make staff, tech, master, senior, chief, da 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 da. So I think a lot of them turn back to that because that's what they know. That's their, that's their fuel for all the things which sabotages the whole like you said sabotages the whole reason that you're going to be a chief it's for you to be unfettered from these pressures to give frank and honest feedback to all the leaders and to be brave because what's the what like literally what the fuck is the worst that can happen unless you're you're sexually assaulting one someone or getting a dwi and killing someone the most that can happen is you're going to just still be a chief but now you're going to be an amu you're still going to be a chief or you, or you'll retire, which by the way, it's pretty fucking cool. Just want to put that out there. So, uh, those are my thoughts on that. And how are you expected to lead when you're not above reproach all the time? Yeah. yeah. Was it difficult? You better believe it was difficult because you had to watch every single thing you did every single day, all the time. And you couldn't not pay attention. And it seems like recently there's a lot more chiefs that are like sexually harassing, sexually assaulting DWIs. Like, so I guess my question is as somebody that was, you know, back in the air force before I, and a chief is, is it that those things are more visible now because of social media or because those chiefs are being held accountable or like, did, did this stuff happen back in the day and it just never made it to light? It, it it did, but it didn't to the extent. And and I'm part of a, a retired chiefs group, and mm-hmm. I asked that question. And a lot of the chiefs out there, you know, some of them retired back in the seventies. You yeah. know, uh, some of them were have been out for you know thirty five, forty years, and they said it happened. 
But what we're seeing now is more of it. And it's some of the worst stuff yeah. that, that could happen. Back in the day, it was mostly, most of it was just uh, drinking and driving. Yeah. Okay. That was what usually got the chiefs in trouble was mm-hmm. drinking and driving. And in some cases that was, you know, pretty much glossed over. Um, but with the advent of, of electrical electronics and technology and the uh, temptation that yeah. exists within that is getting these guys into trouble because they're not containing their themselves. Well, it's because they're putting self above service, right? It's a, it's a self gratification. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They're putting self above service when they, when they're having that fling with their assistant or their detect sergeant down the, down the, you know, the hall or whatever. Um, That's a self gratification piece. And probably that person should never have been elevated to that position because chances are, that wasn't something that that just happened for them. Yeah. That was something that has been a part of their core value yeah. from the beginning. So I guess let's move on to like excellence uh, as the last core value and how it relates to leadership. Like, so first of all, I see in order to be an excellent leader, you have to do the first two right off the bat. Like you have to have integrity, which involves mm-hmm. like being honest with your people and then service before self, which is putting your people ahead of your own wants, your own career. Like mm-hmm. in order to be an excellent leader, you have to do both of those things as a baseline. But then also I think of like, you need to become a good leader in the sense that what, you know, those traits you rattled off, like inspiring people, motivating people, treating mm-hmm. people with respect. That is what an excellent leader is. Those are the qualities of an excellent leader. And yes. it has to be something you have, not something you just show, right? So like yes. when I think of leaders that are coercive, like uh, dragging people on the weekend to like mop floors because you're mad that there was a bunch of QA fails or something like that. Like that's like yep. you might be trying to discipline them. But the reality is to be an excellent leader, you need to you need to go beyond the superficial to go. What is going on? Why are what is this a culture issue? Is is lack of compliance? what is going on here, like being excellent takes time and energy and effort to really understand your people and not just beat them down. Is my first thought. Yep. So what I want to do real quick on this one is, you know, because when you're talking about excellence, that is very broad, Mm -hmm. very uh, all encompassing and can be nebulous at times. So what I want to do real quick is read what the Air Force says about excellence and all we do. And what they say is an airman strives for continual improvement in self and service in order to propel the Air Force further and to achieve greater accomplishments and performance for themselves and their community. And that kind of sums sums up how the Air Force looks at excellence and all we do. Yeah. Each individual person has to take that piece of excellence and they have to strive for something better than what they are today. Yeah. If you're better tomorrow than you were today, then you continuously strive for excellence. Is everybody excellent? Absolutely not. Is anybody excellent? That's in the eye of the beholder. 
if they're achieving your attainable bar and they're doing it with integrity and service before self as they're uh, reaching that that bar that you set attainable bar that you set now you have instilled excellence in your people and you're motivating them and you're setting the example yeah and i think that also plays into what i said before like dangling promotion that's not the motivation the leadership principles are talking about motivating them is you're placing an intrinsic drive in them to excel and to succeed like promotion consideration that's extrinsic you're trying to bait them into doing certain things in order so they they excel and it does what you want them to do if you're an excellent leader you don't even need to talk about promotion and it's just you know you've you've created a standard or an expectation that as you said is attainable and it's the goal is excellence and they want to get there solely because they want to be excellent because you've instilled that drive in them that's it so like if if you as a leader you're trying to like coax people into doing stuff and and dangling promotion you're failing as a leader because you shouldn't have to use um bait or mechanisms in order like the motivation comes from how you treat your people the character that you exude your integrity your service before self that becomes the motivation because you're you're putting your people first and they feel it like they genuinely feel it and they like when you work for a good leader you want to work and they don't even ask mm -hmm. and a lot of times and it's also because there's a trust they're not going to ask too much like there's one thing to surge and you need to we have to get it over this hump we're going to work six days a week 12s okay but it's finite it's not going to become mm -hmm. the new normal and i'm doing this because i'm trying to give you your weekends back let's go right. okay i trust you and now i'm motivated there's no other like things going on it's just that i think this person has my best interest at heart he's they are trying to take care of me and it, it revolves involves this difficult thing a lot of what we a lot of what i see a lot of what i saw a lot of what i hear about are leaders that are just motivating their people through coercion fear abuse threats um false promises like also most leaders can't control your promotion the spoiler like they can dangle but they don't know what the fuck the board's going to do they don't know what the commander's going to do and also now that it's this new quota competitive thing you may not be doing anything that's spectacular outside of what all the other people who are being dangled promotion. It's a fucking, it's a Ponzi scheme where everybody says, do this and you're going to have these riches. But the reality is there's going to be two promote nows, three must promotes, and everybody else is going to get a promote no matter what the fuck you did. Yep. yep. But then now, now you're absolutely breaking a trust because you're like, I did all this because you said this would help me in my promotion. And then the, the leader exudes um, shitty integrity and says, well, you know, the board, I can't really control what the board did. Just got to keep doing it. Got to try again mm -hmm. next year type of deal. Like that, these are, none of these are leadership qualities, at least not good ones, mm -hmm. what I'm describing, but this is the norm in leadership, period. It, it's, it is a sad state of affairs, uh, you know, when you're telling your people and dangling the promotion out there, that's really not, you know, taking care of your people um you're and it's not good motivational tactics and, uh, and also spoiler like narrative eprs isn't going to solve this problem narrative 1206 isn't going to solve these problems this is change for the sake of change this is chaff flare 
Like this isn't anything, it's distractors. Like there is a genuine systemic problem in leadership development, leadership application and promotion selection period. Like I could be wrong, I don't think I am. And I think a lot of people listening probably also agree, like we don't promote the right people and that's, and we've done it year after year after year. And now we're getting to a point where we're seeing broad effects of having underqualified leaders at all kinds of different levels. E9s, as derogatory as the term is, maintenance group commanders that are fucking abusive and toxic, squadron commanders that have never heard no until some master and there's like, that's a bad idea. Like, I'm the person that stands up and says, that's, that's wrong, you shouldn't do it. That's, that right there is a manifestation of a broken system. And you're talking about an entire promotion system based on this model, a narrative EPR and a narrative 1206, is not going to fucking solve that problem at all. No, you're absolutely correct. Um, when I when I was in Korea, you know, we talked about one year maintenance, and and I had an electrician go out there. We had a, an issue with you know power, and it was coming off the battery. And I walked out there, and he was out there replacing one of the battery wires, and he looked at me and he goes, "See this right here, Chief?" Yeah, he said, "That's I did that three years ago." He says, "I remember this." He said, that was my work three years ago. He said, I'm not doing one-year maintenance. We're replacing this line. He says, because I could just you know, fix yeah. this line and move on. He says, but that's not going to solve the problem. And he says, yeah. I don't want to leave this for the next person. Okay. So somewhere, uh, the, the motivating factor uh, in, in the excellence uh, had gotten through him because I talked about it all the time that I didn't like how they would perform one-year maintenance just to get the airplane aloft. That was not going to do it because it was our year for an operational readiness inspection. You know, they were going to pound us into the ground. Yeah. If we ran out of airplanes, then we weren't going to, you know, it wasn't that we weren't going to get a good grade, but we weren't going to be able to fight a, a real war. Right. I think a lot of people missed that too. Yeah. And that was what I was saying. I said, you know, IG grade be damned. This isn't what this is about. This is about us having to fight a war. And we have to come back and we're in chem gear trying to fix a problem that we should have fixed, you know, right the first time, you know, let's not fix it right the second time. Yeah. Let's fix it right the first time. And that way, when we send these airplanes off and they come back, all we have to do is gas them and load them yep. and send them right back up. You know, I wish more chiefs would live by the creed. You know, we talk about that peace and excellence and all we do. And if you live by the creed and you understand what the chief's creed is, you will understand what uh, what it means to be at excellence in all you do and, uh, as a chief. And if you don't mind, I'd just like to go through it real quick. And you know, it's uh, yeah, absolutely individuals, you know, essentially they're talking about the chief's individuals to be regarded as people who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who possesses opinion and a will who are larger than their vocations, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who do not hesitate to take chances, who will be as honest in small things as in great ones, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires and interests, and who will not say uh, they do it because everybody else does it, who are true to their friends through good report and evil report, in adversity as well as prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, hard-headedness are the best qualities for winning success, and who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, 
who can say no with emphasis, although all the world is saying yes. And if more chiefs lived by that, we wouldn't be seeing so many of these chiefs on social media where they're up against the court martial for, you know, misbehaving all the time. You know, we're not, we won't see that stuff. If they just read the creed that is read to them at their induction ceremony. Yeah. yeah. You can't say that. Cause that's not what it is. We're not being inducted into the, you know, oh. chiefs where um, it's a recognition ceremony because yeah, we were inducted as senior NCOs, but we can't be inducted. as Like chiefs. that creed seems like that should apply to lots of ranks. It, it should. Yes. Right? Yes, it does. It, it does. And you know, we all know what the airman's creed says, you know, there's a, there's a lot of similar similar words used in in that as well yeah though it's it's a little weaker and i don't think they took as much time to develop the airman's creed as they did in thoughtfulness mm. towards the chief's creed it's really fluffy and flowery and i'm really not a big fan of the airman's creed also along with all of these things is all of these things play into it the core values the airman's creed the chief's creed and the oath of enlistment. Yeah. The oath of enlistment has some really, really powerful things in there. And if you stop long enough to listen and dissect what that what that oath says in there, it's heavy. I mean, it's yeah. real heavy. And it also it's like it creates like I think a lot of people miss it. It it also requires trust that yes. the le- in leadership that what you're being told what you're being ordered to do mm-hmm. is necessary, is moral, is ethical, is legal. Um, yes. You know, I had that long conversation about, you know, recognizing a lawful and unlawful order. And I think maintainers face unlawful orders nearly every day. And they, mm-hmm. they, they don't have the background to, to recognize it, but they swore an oath that they would only follow the lawful ones. Yep. And, and I think it's, I think I think the fundamental problem is you can write down the 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 recipe for leadership for character all you want but it the hard part is doing it and enforcing it and holding yep. that standard which requires the character right yep. um and I just think I just think right now right now and certainly for the last at least 15 years maybe more we ha- we legitimately haven't been doing all the things that we've written down on paper for what makes a good airman, a good chief, a military member, a leader, uh, you name it. So no. do you have we, any we've, final we've, thoughts? We, we've kind of lost our way a little bit in, in uh, light of some of the um, um, global uh, worldly perspectives and not so worldly perspectives. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, um, we, I think the air force needs to, calm down, settle down, know what is, what is necessary, understand and teach what is necessary. You know, um, uh, it was very clear when I joined completely clear what our role and function was. And that was to fight the Russians coming through the fold of gap. Our entire life, everything we did, every bit of training was training to fight that threat. 
you know, the Cold War threat, the, mm-hmm. the Cold War turning to a hot war, uh, hot war threat. That was what our training was. Now we don't really know where we need to land our ship. And while they're doing that, they're taking taking the airmen down a different path that uh, I don't think is as, as focused as it needs to be. Uh, they're, they're more worried about, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're more worried about how someone feels about something than to say, look, if you don't pull the trigger and fire the gun, that person that you're looking at is going to do that and you're not going to live. Mm. That, that's, that's a very blunt and short way of putting it. And in maintenance, we don't necessarily think that, well, that won't happen to us. Well, very well could. It very well could because we have, we have troops today in harm's way. And who knows what's going to happen next? Do they have the, the moral fortitude to pick up that gun, level it? And pull the trigger. Well, I think you know, you know. Just I'll just dip my toe in a second. I think I think having to convince people of that belies that people don't trust that what they're being told by their leadership is necessary or true. Right? Like we've created a distrust because of all the things we've wa- walked through for this whole episode. That all of these egregious sort of examples, it all breaks a trust with your people. And when you, when, when it comes time where you need to put like the rubber to the road and you need your people to perform and you've been lying to them in these little like paper cuts for their whole career, they're going to question it. Yep. And then, so like our, what they're trying to do is trying to, to work, to convince the people you should, and these are all the things you should do. And this is the motivation. That's not the solution. You need to look at why don't your people trust you? And, and the answer is much of what we've gone through here, which is going to require, you know, much like the chief master in the Air Force says that, you know, she can't solve these issues at her level. You can because there is a system that breeds distrust in your leadership because of how we've constructed the system. Yes, it has to start somewhere. Okay, it has to start somewhere. and. You can't defer any leadership function to somewhere else. Yeah. If you're a leader and you're a senior leader, that's exactly what it means. Correct. You lead. You lead. You you don't defer. You lead it. Lead it. I guess uh, uh, to to kind of sum it up from my perspective is is um, I would encourage the listeners out there to do uh, to read the core values, understand the core values, understand what that means. And it means not just to them, but to means to the airman next to them and the NCO and senior NCO above them or the airman below them. Uh, read and understand and study what the oath of enlistment really and truly is trying to tell us, what it means, what it truly means. And it's not words that you, that you say as you're re-enlisting, there are, there are, it's, it's heavy and deep. And for you to read it and understand it, you can understand how, how heavy and deep it is. 
know what the Airman's Creed is, not just know the words. Just don't know the words. Know what the words mean. And for those of you who aren't chiefs, I encourage the chiefs, if you're listening, read and study and understand what the chief's creed means. And to those who aren't chiefs, read and understand what the chief's creed says and what those bullets actually mean. You can get a better sense of your leadership abilities if you do a little bit of study and a little bit of deep diving into uh, into all of that. And I would recommend people as they're studying service before self, read the charge of the light brigade. That one right there says everything about service before self. All right. Well, thanks, Curtis. Yeah, thank you. I appreciated it. That was, I enjoyed this. I knew you would. That's why I asked you. I knew it. I knew it. I knew that was going to be a good uh, deep dive. So uh, I highly encourage you to check out Curtis's other episodes. Like I said, 27, 29, 34, 36, 41, 48, 51, and now this one, 58. Might require you to listen to it again. But uh, I'm, I always enjoy our conversations, Curtis. I'm really happy I saw your random comment on Facebook like uh, <laughs> seven or eight months ago. Me too. Because it's, uh, you know, it's been very, very helpful in uh, like walking through some of these uh, leadership pieces. I think you have a great mind for it. And I always appreciate that you listen and digest and like really kind of, it's just like what you talked about. You're looking for somebody to disagree in such a way to find the best possible answer. Like there's stuff we don't agree on, but there's also Mm -hmm. like, like much like when you first started talking about service before self, mine was superficial. And you were like, well, I don't agree with that because it's all this. I'm like, oh, that's a great point. Like, let's go back through. Let me, let me refocus this and let's expand on a little bit. Uh, and that's what this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Uh, and also, like, if I say something that's like stupid or wrong, like, I fully understand <laughs> that you're going to be like, all right, Chris, that's not right. <laughs> Although the secret is I edit all those out. No, I'm just kidding. I've never edited those out. Uh, so uh, otherwise, uh, Curtis, thanks so much for joining. And uh, until next time, right? My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. Adios. Adios.